They, they have a little EP. You should get it. Those guys are the jam. We went to no, ministry school. What's that? Yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. We're just going to do some shameless promotion. You guys got to go on the iTunes and buy the Paper Tongues full-length album. Heather and I went to ministry school with several of those guys, and Randy Jackson is their manager, and they love the Lord, and they're going to, like, bust it up. So, you know, just promotion. We got, we got to promote the good guys occasionally, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's some of the good guys. They're the home team. Um, before we get into it this morning, uh, Travis, why don't you come on up, Bubby? Um, Travis is going to be gone for four months, and here, here's what I want to tell you about being gone for four months. If you're gone to Peru for four months, you, you will miss home. And so it would be really great if everybody could just kind of keep Travis in their, prayer, in their prayer life. Not only that, but you know, hit Travis on Facebook. They have internet down there. We're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to continue on. It's a little, it's a little mini-series mini here about dealing with some of the really tough issues that come up. And uh, one, of the, one of the toughest issues that, that comes up in, um, in life is conflict. Uh, I asked this question last Sunday, and I'll ask it to everyone here as well. Does, does anyone in the room, because there, there's new people here this morning, does anyone in here in the room enjoy conflict? Anybody just really enjoy it? Like, this is, one guy over here enjoys conflict. What's that? No. Let, me, let me be more specific. Who here enjoys, who here enjoys Having conflict, interpersonal conflict. Okay. It's the problem. You st- when, you're, when you're preaching and you start asking questions, you have to ask specific questions. And then you have to pray like heck that Richard Fogler isn't in the room. See, I, that's one of the things I, what's one of the things I do when I'm preparing my sermons. I go, is this, is this thought Richard Fogler proof? Because he's going to bust me later. Now I have to put you in it. Now, now, every week, I'm thinking about you and Richard. Yeah, but does anybody enjoy interpersonal conflict? Most of us don't, and most of us have lived long enough to realize that interpersonal conflict is a reality growing up. I told you guys some stories about me and my sister growing up. I mean, she could, she could work it no matter what the situation was. She would come out golden, and I would come out something less than golden. And, and that's, you know, so interpersonal conflict is a reality growing up. It's, it's, a, it's a reality at school. Uh, it's a reality at the workplace. Um, it's a reality everywhere we are. Um, I'll tell you another story about interpersonal conflict. Um, it really doesn't have much to do with the message, but I forgot to tell it last week, and it's kind of funny. I was um, about enjoying conflict. Um, I was probably 18 years old, and I was driving. At the time, my sister had this, this geo tracker. It was red, and it was it was lowered. Okay, if you can imagine a geo tracker lowered. Okay, and it, it was a two wheel drive, so it was possible. And this thing, I mean, it just bounced like crazy. So I don't know why I had it, but I was driving it one day, and I was coming up Main Street. And as I'm coming around the corner by Firestone, okay, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. The corner off of Main Street by Firestone, headed toward Broadway. I see this guy, and he's parked in the he's parked in that parking lot right there. I don't even know what that is, like a Best Financial now or something. And as I'm passing by, I just kind of look at him, and I didn't mean anything by it. I just, I have heavy eyebrows, so people think that I'm mad, and I'm not. I was just kind of, gave him one of those and drove up. No big deal. Next thing I know, I'm sitting at the stoplight, 
in front of, in front of Broadway. So uh, the car lot's here, the bank's here, the church is there, and the pharmacy's here. And the guy that, that I just passed is behind me, and he's getting out of his car. And he's up next to my tracker, and before I can even say anything, he just punches me as hard as he can right in the face. Yeah, it gets better, though, because I'm pretty quick, okay? And he wasn't calculating dealing with a quick, wiry dude. And so as he punches me, punches me right in the face, and his arm comes through the windshield, and as it did through the corner of my eye, I just grab him, and I pull him in, and I have his face in front of the steering wheel, and I just (laughs) pound this guy. And then, and I don't know who it is, and so I just, I throw him out in the road. And then I got scared. I I was kind of young. Then I got scared, and the light turned green, so I left him. See, conflict is a part of life, and it, like, dudes can, dudes can get you anywhere. In case you're wondering, I've asked the Lord to forgive me, okay? And, and if that mystery guy is listening to the audio archive, dude, I'm sorry, I wasn't like, I wasn't giving you the stink eye when we, and I, and I didn't mean to bloody your nose. Sorry. Please forgive me, brother, wherever you're at. Yeah, but, um, but conflict is a real part of life. We've come to expect it at home. We've come to expect a certain amount of it at school. We've come to expect a certain amount of it at work. It can even happen on Main Street. But it's really, really disappointing when it happens at church, right? Because we live with, we live with a reality... Or, or, or let me put it this way, we live with a mind, mindset or a worldview that says, well, you know, isn't Christianity about love and acceptance and mercy and all of these gentle and kind things? And when something happens at church that's something less than love and mercy, gentle and kind, it's rather shocking. Until you realize that the people you go to church with are the same people that you grew up with and they're the same people that you went to school with and they're the same people that you work with and they're the same dudes who harass you on Main Street. So what's the point? The point is that we shouldn't be surprised when we have to deal with conflict at church. And um, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is just, the whole, the whole chapter is about how to, how to handle ourselves when things aren't going great, Okay. And we, did, we looked at a really famous piece of scripture, um, and it's, um, I'll just read it real quick to you, because there's some new people, and I just want to review, if that's all right. Um, chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he still refuses to listen... Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so here's some really good news in this, in this piece of scripture that we looked at last week. The good news is that Jesus has a plan. He has a battle plan, and he has a strategy for how to handle conflict in the church. And he has a battle plan and a strategy for how to handle conflict in such a way that people's hearts and people's, uh, people's identity gets protected. Okay? Um, just as, as a way of review, I want to hit a couple things really quick. Number one, when Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, the first thing we need to realize is that we're always dealing with brothers, okay? 
we're dealing with brothers and sisters. And so Jesus' Jesus's battle plan for how to deal with conflict, he, he's talking about brothers. He's talking about fellow Christians. And one of the things that happens when, when a brother or a sister in Jesus wounds us, one of the things that happens is we, we, are, tempted, we are tempted to reduce that person we're tempted to reduce that person to their moment of weakness and begin to change their identity from brother to, he's not a brother, he's a liar. He lied to me, he's a liar. And, and one, of the things, one of the things that can keep us in a place where we, can, where we can maintain relationship is to realize that we're not dealing with liars, we're dealing with brothers and sisters. Anybody want to anybody put their brother or their sister permanently out of their life? Most of us would say no. And it's the same thing. It's the same, it's the same deal within the church. The other thing that Jesus shows us in, in this verse in chapter 18 is that, is that this method for dealing with conflict, it's not just, it's not a method for dealing with any and every sort of conflict. It's a, it's a method for dealing with the kind of conflict that surrounds sin. If a brother sins against you. So what Jesus didn't say was, this is how you handle it if a brother offends you. Jesus didn't say, this is how you, this is how you handle it if it... This is not how you handle garden variety offenses. Oh, he didn't look at me when we came in. He didn't shake my hand. Jesus isn't saying that's how you deal with garden variety offenses. He's not even saying this is how you deal with personality differences. You know, there's some dudes over there who, on that side of the church, they really bother me. Their personalities bother me. You know, Jesus is not outlining a way to handle with personality differences, and he's not outlining a way to deal with... with, uh, garden variety offenses. What he's dealing with is sin. If a brother or sister actually sins against you. So what do you do with garden variety offenses and personality differences? One of the things we looked at last week was Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Clothe yourselves with humility and kindness and goodness and all kinds of stuff. Here's the, here's the deal. When you meet the Lord, when you met the Lord, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. And when the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, he put fruit in your refrigerator and he put clothes in your closet. And so every single morning, everybody has an opportunity to put on a, world, a wardrobe. Everyone here made their, cho- made their wardrobe cho- choice this morning before they came to church. They decided, I'm, I decided I'm going to wear my Levi's jeans and I'm going to wear my shirt. I'm going to put my, my red V-neck shirt under, underneath it because I think it matches nice. I think this looks pretty good, and I'm, I'm going to put on my new brown, shiny leather shoes. I think they're pretty hot. So here's the deal. Everybody makes, a wardrobe, everybody makes a wardrobe choice about as to what they wear every single day. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us in Colossians, tw- uh, Colossians 3, verse 12 through 14, is that we can make a wardrobe choice of attitudes and how we deal with our brothers every single day. There's a closet in the Spirit. You can go to it. You can grab it out. You can put on gentleness, you can put on kindness, and it's amazing what gentleness and kindness will diffuse among personality differences and garden variety offenses. One, thing, one final thing in, in, in review, and then we'll go on. One final thing. Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, you need to go to him privately. Just go to him one-on-one and, and win your brother back. And, and here's the deal. This is where most of us really fall off the track. Jesus says, go to your brother privately. The thing that he doesn't say is, Go and build a coalition against your brother. Go and build a coalition against your sister. Splat, splatter it all over the internet. Bust him a new one on the internet and let him know about it. You know, Jesus doesn't say, let's play passive-aggressive games on Facebook. Jesus says, go to your brother privately so that you can win your brother back. 
I'm telling you. I've had, I've had some... Um, I've had some experience in dealing with conflict at the church and uh, conflict at work and conflict on Main Street. And one of the things that I've found in dealing with all kinds of conflict is that probably 95% of conflict gets dealt with if you go one-on-one. 95% of it will get dealt with and it'll get dealt with in such a way that people's identities and personalities and people's personhood gets protected. There's, there's a lot of ge- genius and there's a lot of brilliance in what Jesus says when he says, go, go one-on-one. Because when you go one-on-one, you protect the person's identity that you're going to. Not everybody in the church needs to know that, that this brother sinned against you. Because, because that sometimes, because a lot of times people will take on other people's offenses. You know, a brother offends me, I tell someone else about it, and now this guy who had nothing to do with the situation between my brother and I has become offended by Brother A over here when it has nothing to do with him. And so that's how cancer in the church just gets going. Not only that, but it protects you. protects you. How many of you have ever done this? How many of you have ever gone to a brother one-on-one and you're 100% sure that the brother has sinned against you and as you're, as, you're beginning to, as you're beginning to make your appeal to your brother, the words are coming out of your mouth and you realize, oh my goodness, it's not him, it's me. Yeah, all kinds of brilliance with Jesus. So he, he gives us a battle plan for how to, how to deal with tough stuff. And so today we're going to look on, in Matthew chapter 18, a little further, and uh, we're going to look on, on how to live a lifestyle that embraces forgiveness. How to live a lifestyle that embraces forgiveness. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 35. If you can't read this font, I'm sorry. I just kind of, I found this font and I liked it and so I used it. It's the artist in me, I couldn't help it. See, this is a teaching moment. Peter just offended me. But I'm clothed the kind of, can, hey Peter, I love you brother. I put my humility and kindness clothes on this morning. So verse 21, and this is all happening just right after that little passage we read a second ago. Then Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began, as he began the settlement, a man who owed, owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. It's intense. The servant fell on his knees before him, and he said, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servants, and his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, that's a strange 
concept to me. I, I don't understand that concept. How's he going to pay you if he's in prison? I, I don't know. Okay. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Mm. This is is hardcore, you know. And so in anger, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should be paid back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. First thing, how many of you realize that Jesus didn't flinch when he spoke this parable? Jesus wasn't flinching, and the first thing I want to let everybody know is Jesus wasn't kidding. this This is how it works in the kingdom, all right? So walking in forgiveness and letting go of bitterness. Well, at the very beginning, Jesus, uh, Jesus has just been teaching his disciples, hey guys, this is, how you, this is how you deal with conflict in the church. And then after that, Peter says, well, man, master, how many times do I have to forgive when my brother sins against me? Do I have to forgive him seven times? And when Peter says, hey, do I have to forgive my brother seven times? He's actually being very generous because the Jewish tradition was you had to forgive your brother three times. And then after three times, you could, t- you could treat him like a tax collector. You could just punch him, just whatever, you know. But you owed him at least three times. And so when, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, hey, master, do I have to forgive my brother seven times? He's actually being generous. And I think this is Peter's attempt at having, uh, allowing his righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees. I actually think this is good-natured Peter trying his very best and putting it out there. And so he's saying, Master, should, I, should we forgive our brother seven times? And, and the Lord comes back to him and says, No, we shouldn't forgive our brother seven times. We should forgive him 77 times. Some of your translations have 70 times seven, right? What is 70 times seven? Okay, so Jesus is saying we should, get, we should forgive our brother between 77 times and 490 times. No, no what Jesus is saying is that when we forgive... We should, we should extend to our brother and our sister, even the ones who sin against us, we should extend to our brothers and sisters unlimited forgiveness. What is unlimited forgiveness? Unlimited forgiveness is the kind of forgiveness that doesn't count. The kind of forgiveness that isn't counting. How many of you realize if you're counting, it's not really forgiveness? It's like, it's like 480... 481, 483, 484, 485, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. Yeah. How many of you realize if you're counting, it's not really forgiveness? The other thing I'd like to point out here is that that when Jesus is, is... speaking this word to his disciples, he's talking about real life. You think, Adam, what are you talking about? Real life. Jesus is talking about real life. And so here's what I want us to do. We can have a little exercise in the room because this is, this is real life and it's, it's real life that encompasses everybody in the purple room. How many of you have somebody that really drives you bonkers? Okay, 
Not only that, how many, how many of you have somebody, how many of you have some bodies who really drive you crazy? All right, how many of you have not just somebody or some bodies who drive you crazy, but you have a situation or somebody, and it's not just they drive you crazy, but they've sinned against you, and, it's, and it's, not, it's not gray, it's black, and it's white. They've sinned against you. Not only that, but they, it, it appears that they've gotten some pleasure out of this. Uh, not only that, but, but uh, they know that it wounded you, and, and it appears that they really don't care. Does anybody have some of that in your life? How many, have anybody, has anybody experienced that in your life? Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus is talking about that, Okay? Jesus is not talking about somebody else's issues. He's talking about your issues. He's talking about my issues. He's not talking about someone else's offenses. He's talking about the ones that have actually offended, and not just offended, but wounded you. And he's talking about the people who wounded you and liked it. And so when Peter says, how many times should we forgive our brother who offends us and wounds us and likes to offend and wound us? How many times should we offend that brother? The Lord's answer is, you should give him unlimited forgiveness that isn't counting. Let's put this on the other foot. How many of you would like to receive unlimited forgiveness that isn't counting? Here's the thing I found out about forgiveness. Everybody loves the idea of of accepting unlimited forgiveness that isn't counting. What is it about extending unlimited forgiveness that isn't counting that's such a bear? Yeah, it's getting quiet in the room. So that's just the sound of people dealing with stuff, or that's what I'm going to say it is. Some of you are probably thinking, well, how is it possible to live life and to have the kind of heart where I can extend unlimited forgiveness that isn't counting to people? How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you how it's possible, and it's possible in the parable that Jesus tells. Look at, look, at verse, look at verse 23, because verse 23 is so, so important, or at least it is for me. Verse 24, 23. This is Jesus' explanation on moving in unlimited forgiveness that isn't, that isn't counting. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, and we'll stop right there. And I just want you to underline that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. See, here's the deal. That's so incredibly important. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he says it all over the Gospels. Anytime he's teaching, a lot of times when he begins to share a parable, he'll begin the parable with that little phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And and here's, I just want to give you the translation on that. The translation on the kingdom of heaven is like is this. The culture of the kingdom is this. So when Jesus begins to tell this parable, and he begins by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's doing is, He's telling a parable that explains and demonstrates the kingdom's culture. Everybody know what culture is? It, it's, it's, like, it's like the values. Uh, it's the values of a culture. It's the values of a nation or a place or a people. It's, it's, it's not just their values, but it's their practices. It's their beliefs. It's a people's hopes and, and dreams and, and accumulated, uh, accumulated uh, uh, goals. Um, and here's the deal. 
I don't know if you realize this, but every people group has their own culture. Every people group has their own value system, their own, their own aspirations. Um, most of you guys realize this, that, that, uh, that the 4th of July is a, is a, is a purely, uh, purely American example of culture, right? And, and not only that, but even, even within... Even within, uh, even within the 4th of July as a, as a cultural phenomenon within the United States, depending upon the regions of the, of the states that you go into, um, the 4th of July carries different significance in different places, right? How many of you all have lived in Campbellsville for a while? How many of you know that the 4th of July is like a big deal around here? Okay, and if you haven't, you're going to find out that it's a big deal around here. Um, the 4th of July is actually my favorite day of the year to be in Campbellsville. Because it's Campbellsville's best day. I mean, it, Campbellsville pretties up. Thousands of people that I've never seen in my life show up. And, you know, we have a, we have a it's a cultural event. I mean, I love it. There's, there's, there's Shriners ride those little mini things around. I don't know what those are. Um, and then, uh, gosh, the beauty queens come down. That, that's always so strange to me. I, I, you know, the little kid, put the little kids up and, and they put them on a car and everybody goes through. And then whoever's running for office is throwing candy to everyone and begging for votes. And, and, then, and then the tractors go through. It's like an hour and a half of tractors. And I, I especially appreciate the two or three individuals who put their lawnmowers in. Some of you guys are not from here and have never seen our 4th of July parade. It's true. People ride their lawnmowers. Here's the cool thing about, here's the, cool thing about the 4th of July parade here in Campbellsville. If you want to be in it, you can. I've even seen people just like break down to their wife beater and, and walk. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Like, you don't have to be anybody. You don't have to have anything special. Just, just a little garden tractor. Put on your wife beater. You're in. <laughs> That's what our soldiers pay the price for. I also like, after the parade's over, I also like how it'll be like 98 degrees and 100% humidity, and then there's, there's horse manure you just have to watch out for. Yeah. But it's a cultural phenomenon, you know? And so Jesus is telling this parable, and he's telling the parable about what kingdom culture is like, you know? Campbellsville has a certain culture. We embrace the 4th of July. We ride our, we ride our lawnmowers in the parade. That's what we do. And, and Jesus is saying this is the kingdom culture. Not only that, but um, Heather and I have just had the distinct pleasure of getting to travel to the nation of Chile and do some ministry. And as soon as you touch down, you realize, you know, you know we're, not, we're not home anymore. It's totally different. And um, Chile has a totally different culture. One of the things that Heather and I noticed right away, this, and this is going to be really random, so just hang with me. But one of the things that Heather and I noticed straight away about the Chilean culture was that they, these people love their mayonnaise. And they love to put their mayonnaise on everything, okay? Like, if you get a hot dog and you just, if you just told them, I just want a plain hot dog, the hot dog comes out with five pounds of mayonnaise on it. You're like, dude, I wanted a plain hot dog. And they're like, that is a plain hot dog. These people love their mayonnaise. Not only that, but, but they would take, would take, they did take, they took corn, they cut it off the cob, like got a big bowl of corn, and then they, they took about a, and everything comes in a bag. There's no cans, okay? So everything's in a bag. So they cut open a bag, they take the corn, and then they squeeze about a half a bag of mayonnaise in it and mix it up and put it on the table. And I said, what's that? And she said, salad. <laughs> See, in Chile, 
If you put corn and mayonnaise together, it's salad. At my house, it's a nightmare. It's like, we're not eating that. But every culture has its thing. And um, in Chile, they even worship a little bit different. I want to I play you guys just a little clip here. Kevin's gonna, Kevin just volunteered to start playing accordion in the worship band. Yeah, did you guys notice the piano player? He was doing that one. Yeah. He's my favorite. Every time I watch that video, I'm just like, piano guy. Whatever that is. We don't even have a piano anymore, like really. And anytime Glenn does play it, I've never seen Glenn give it that, you know. We'll hold you to that. Yeah, see, every, every place has its own culture. And so when Jesus, when Jesus begins to tell this parable, what he's spelling out is that the kingdom of heaven has a certain kind of culture. And within the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the culture that, that rules and, and the value that, uh, that, that, that the people share within the kingdom, mercy and forgiveness is essential. It's an essential ingredient and it's an essential value in the kingdom of heaven. What, what is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is like a kind of place where forgiveness that isn't counting is shared among everyone. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, when you were born from above, you were born into another culture. Like, it doesn't matter if you lived in Taylor County. It doesn't matter if you're a college student and you came from Texas. It doesn't matter if you're a college, if you're a college student and you came from another country. It doesn't matter if you go to another country. Everyone who meets the Lord, everyone who decides to be his disciple, everyone who becomes his follower, everyone who's born from above is born not just from the place that they're, not just from the country that they, that they were born in naturally, but you're born into a new society, you're born into a new culture, you're born into a new kingdom with new values, new parameters, new goals, new identities. And, and when you get born into the kingdom of heaven, you get born into a culture that values mercy and forgiveness. See, in the kingdom of heaven, the first are last, and the last are first. See, in, in this world, the first are first, and the last are last, and that's just the way it is. And in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, we love our enemies. And in, and in this world, we hate our enemies. And in the kingdom of heaven, we embrace forgiveness. And in the world, we embrace bitterness, because bitterness is our right. It's, our, it's in the Constitution, you know?
So why do we forgive? We forgive because it's kingdom culture. We must forgive because it's kingdom culture. Number two, we can forgive because we have been forgiven. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. I love it. Jesus tells this parable. He says there's a king, and he's going to settle debts with all of his servants. He brings the first servant in, and this servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now, I spent an inordinate amount of time looking on the Internet this week, trying to figure out how much money was 10,000 talents, and here's basically what I've come to. And this is fuzzy math, by the way. Okay? 10,000 talents is roughly $5,329,800,000. My feeling is that's probably a conservative number. Here's why. If we can just, if we can do, if we can do math, can we do math time? I, I don't know why this is interesting to me, but math time, it just, it seems like, it, for this moment, it seems right. I can barely do math, so this is a moment that we need to go with, okay? Um, so one dude comes in and he owes, owes the king 10,000 talents, okay? One talent, let me put it this way. One guy comes in, he owes the king 10,000 talents. The other guy owes the other servant 100 denarii, okay? So a denarius was essentially one day's labor, okay? For just a common laborer, okay? So you take one day's labor, he owes him 100 days labor. The other guy owes 10,000 talents, how do, we, how do we make the exchange? Well, I dug on the internet, and I actually found a converter. It's, this is so strange. You can dig on the internet, and you can find a converter that converts denarius to talents. Who knew? But when you, when you find this converter that converts denarius to talents, the thing you find out is that it takes 8,883 no, 8, denarius to equal one talent. Okay? So let's do the math like this. A common day's labor is a denarius. So let's just say seven, seven and a half dollars an hour times eight hour a day. The truth is those dudes worked more like 12 hours back, those, back in those days. Well, let's just say seven and a half dollars times an eight hour day, that's 60 bucks, times 8,883 times 10,000, that gets you 5,329,800,000. So first dude comes to the king and he owes the king over $5 billion dollars. That's a lot of freaking money. <laughs> Hoss, can I tell you something? That is the exact thing that I've been, that is like, I try to meditate through the scripture. I, I, was, I got so stuck on that right there this week, it was unbelievable. I was stuck all week long on two things. Number one, how merciful How merciful is the king, not only to forgive his debt, but how merciful and patient is the king to let the servant run up a $5 billion debt? Come on. We have, I mean, like the the kingdom culture that we got born into, the guy who's running the show is an incredibly patient and merciful God. And I spent all week long thinking, what did the dude buy? I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, he wasn't living in the most glamorous time. This story wasn't told in the most glamorous time. You, just, you, couldn't, go, you couldn't go down to the corner Tiffany's. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't go to the mall and, you know, rack it up. What did he do? He owed the king over $5 billion. And so the king, who was rich in mercy, 
takes pity on him. And that word pity there is the very same word that's used in Matthew 14 when Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion on them and he heals them right before he, he, he breaks the bread and feeds the fish for the 5,000. It's the same word. So here's what we've got. We've got a compassionate and caring and merciful God who has a servant who owes him $5 billion. I can't get over it. $5 billion. The guy comes in and falls on his knees and says, if you'll just give me some time. He makes $7.5 an hour. If you'll just give me some time. All I need is patience. What did the guy need? He didn't need forgiveness. He didn't need patience. He needed forgiveness. He came asking for patience, but what he really needed was forgiveness. And so the king, who is really, really sweet, more than really sweet, gives his, gives his servant what he really needs. And, and I hope that we're beginning to make the mental jump here. We must forgive because we live in a kingdom culture. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. And, and I hope that everyone has already done the mental jump and realized that the servant who owed the king $5 billion is you and me. It, it, was, it, it didn't even matter how many billion it was. It was, it was an inordinate amount of money. It was, it was, a, it was an amount that was not, not possible to pay back. Uh, no one in their lifetime most likely was going to be able to come up with that kind of cash. Uh, even Warren Buffett would go a little hinky about $5 billion. Warren Buffett's one of my heroes, by the way. Come on. He still lives in his original house. Yeah. So what do we learn here? We learn that the king is merciful and he's patient and he's kind and he's full of forgiveness. And uh, I think we got a movie clip. I want to show you something. Uh, while, while Erica is bringing that up, uh, this is a movie clip from a movie called The Mission. Anybody seen the, the movie called The Mission? Yeah, it's so good. Okay, I want to set this up for you. Um, there is, uh, th- this is back at around 1750. There are these Jesuit priests who have gone into the jungle and they've, began to, they've begun to just uh, bring the gospel to, uh, to some, 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 some Indians who are living in the jungle. And one of the priests has made some breakthrough with, uh, with a tribe there in, in the jungle. And while he's making breakthrough with the tribe, he meets he meets a uh, he meets a basically a a uh, a Spanish guy who's a slave trader, and it's his job to go into the jungles and and grab these grab these Indians who are living there and bring them back uh, to make them uh, slaves for the colony. Okay, and that's played by Robert De Niro. And along the process, Robert De Niro decides that he wants to he wants to end his life. And this Jesuit priest goes to him and says, "Well, you know." I think you're a coward, and what you really should do is man up and, and, uh, and, and move on. And, and he says, well, I can't do that. And so Robert De, Niro, I mean, Robert De Niro, who is the slave trader, gets invited to come with these, to come with these priests as an act of penance and go and, and, and be a part of the people that he had been oppressing, okay? So, uh, and, um, so uh, we'll play the clip. It should make sense from there. By the way, this is the guy who has been 
oppressing the Indians. that big pack that they cut off of him that those were it was a big pack and it was a pack of all the instruments that he had used to oppress those Indians when he was a slave trader it, it was all of his armor and it was his his rifles and his his bows and his arrows and he, he had been dragging it up up this huge valley and so come and cut it off of him it's just a, it's a picture it's a picture of it, that right I, I just feel like that that movie clip there it's just a picture of of what the Lord's done for every single person who's sitting in the room. You know, we must forgive because we live in a kingdom culture. It's, it's, the, it's the culture of the kingdom. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. But that's not the end of the story. So guy comes in. He's owed the king $5 billion. The king says, go on. And after he, he leaves the king's palace he goes out and he finds a guy who owes him six thousand dollars and he grabs him by the throat that's what the bible says he grabs him by the throat and says pay me back what you owe me and and his fellow servant says well just be patient with me how many of you know that that you can overcome a six thousand dollar debt yeah how many of you know that that patience would have been an acceptable an acceptable response even there where the guy says no and he throws him into prison and when the king finds out, he says, bring that wicked servant to me because I want to have a word with him. Now, is anyone here baffled by the fact that one servant gets, that the servant who gets his debt of $5 billion forgiven becomes the servant who oppresses another servant who owes him $6,000? Is that baffling? Okay. Why, would, why would a servant who had been forgiven $5 billion grab another servant who owed him $6,000 by the throat and demand payment. Why would a servant who, 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 who had been forgiven $5 billion grab another servant who owed him $6,000 by the throat and demand payment? There's only one logical answer. 
The only logical answer for why one servant would treat another that way is because the one who had been forgiven $5 billion really didn't believe that he had been forgiven $5 billion. He was still, if I can put it this way, he was still living his life with a debt mentality. He had been forgiven, but he was living life with a debt mentality. And so if, you're, if, you're, if, you've, if you've been set free, but your heart isn't aware that you have really actually been set free, then the only appropriate thing for you to do is to go find the money any place you can get it, right? And so he went to extract it from another brother. And in the process, treated him, treated him poorly. We must forgive because it's kingdom culture. We can forgive because... We have been forgiving. See, here's the deal. Living a life that embraces forgiveness, flows in, it flows from encountering the merciful, patient, and forgiving king. And here's the deal. Our place as forgiven empowers a lifestyle of forgiveness. To the, to the extent that we lose contact with the great debt that we've been forgiven, that's the extent to which we will begin to hold on to unforgiveness and hold on to bitterness. To the extent that I lose contact with the fact that I have been forgiven $5 billion is the extent to which I will hold on to unforgiveness and I will harbor bitterness in my own heart. And so the king looks at him in verse 33 and he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had on you? Here's the other thing I want to say. I want to say that, that, that Christianity, within Christianity, forgiveness and mercy are not advanced components of the kingdom. They're, they are basic components of the kingdom of heaven. Mercy and forgiveness are not advanced components of the kingdom. They're, they're basic components of the kingdom. Consider it this way. When, when God the Father saw the, saw the poor state that the world had gotten itself into, he decided from his throne to throw a giant fireball and kill everyone, right? No, he decided that he would send his only son and his only son would pay the ultimate price. And by the way, the price that he paid was your, your debt and my debt. He decided that he would send his only son to pay the ultimate price for you and I. And in the process... Forgiveness gets extended, okay? So when I say that, that forgiveness and mercy are, are not advanced components of the kingdom, they are elemental. Like there wouldn't even be Christianity if it wasn't for mercy and forgiveness. There wouldn't even be the kingdom of heaven as we know it and as Jesus has outlined it if it wasn't for the fact that when the Father saw the poor condition that the planet had gotten itself into, he decided to spend his son. That's the, that's the phrase that the Lord would, would, would really highlight this morning. He, he decided to spend his son. And in the process, he, he, he lays a foundation for everyone that would ever come afterwards to, to, to build their life upon. And it's a life of forgiveness and mercy. Not only that, but if you were to, if you were to, take, if you were to take the kingdom of heaven, and if you were, some of you guys are cooks, if you were to take a, a microplane, you know what a microplane is, a little grater thing? Yeah, you know how they take those and they'll like, rub them on oranges, and then you throw it in your soup, and your soup gets better. I've watched, 
I've watched cooking shows. I know how it works. But if you were to take a, if you were to take a microplane and you were, you were to run that across the, the, the kingdom of heaven, what you would find out that's in the essence of it, the, the essence and, and the most basic components of the kingdom of heaven, you'd find out that they're mercy and forgiveness. So we, we must forgive because it's, it's the kingdom culture. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. And one of the things that God declares all through the scriptures, he declares, that his, he, he, he declares his preference, and his preference is mercy. One, one of the loudest declarations in the scripture is, mercy triumphs over judgment. Come on. Yeah. Write that one on your bedroom mirror. You know? It, it's, it's the preference of the king. We have a king who, who prefers mercy over judgment. Can you believe that? So here's the deal. A lot of us have grown up in faith traditions that tell us that God is the kind of God who prefers judgment over mercy. If you grew up in a faith tradition that has either directly or indirectly taught you that God prefers judgment over mercy, I want to tell you it's a lie. Because God prefers mercy over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's, it's crazy. One of the ways you'll know that you've, one of the ways that you'll know that you've bought into the lie that God prefers judgment over mercy is if you find yourself typically running away from the Lord in the moment that you need mercy most. If you find yourself running away from the Lord in the moment that you need mercy most, what that really says is that you have grown up believing that God prefers judgment over mercy. And here's what I want to tell you. If you don't get anything else this morning, God prefers mercy over judgment. He declares it in the scripture. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. We have a father in heaven who would rather forgive your $5 billion debt than set you into prison. That's really good news, by the way. Technology. There we go. So our status as forgiven enables a lifestyle of forgiveness. And this is a huge principle in the scripture. Our status as forgiven enables a lifestyle of forgiveness. No, we, we see it all over. We see it even in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Here's the key phrase. Freely you've received, freely give. What did Jesus expect them to give? He expected them to give freedom to captives, didn't he? He expected them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Why did Jesus expect that his disciples would do those things? Because they had received those things. It's a huge principle in the kingdom. The things you receive are the things that you're empowered to give. Conversely, you can't give anything you haven't received. I know it sounds super simple, but it's just the truth. And it should drive us toward an experience of God and not just a head knowledge about who he is. Your head knowledge about who God is will oftentimes lock you in a prison, but it's your experience of who God is that sets people free. That's a really good word, and that's free. Okay? 
your head knowledge about who God is will oftentimes set you in prison and allow you to set other people in prison, but it's your experience of who God is, personal, not the guy you know next door, but it's your personal encounter with God that will allow you to be set free and allow you to set other people free. If, this is another one. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ Just as in Christ, God forgave you. There's just something about what you've received empowers and enables you to pass out. So you can't give away anything that's not already in your pocket. Now I've got a word for our church specifically. As it relates to mercy and forgiveness. Here's the deal. Mercy and forgiveness are oftentimes a better indicator of a person's position in the kingdom and oftentimes a better indicator of a person's position with God than even demonstrations of power. Okay? Here's why. In Matthew chapter 7, like scariest freaky verse in the entire Bible, okay? Some dudes come to Jesus and they're like, Lord, uh, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons and didn't we do all kinds of power stuff? And he says, get away from me. I didn't know you guys. However, there is something about living a lifestyle that embraces forgiveness and mercy. Forgiveness and mercy are oftentimes a better indicator of your position and another person's position in the kingdom than even demonstrations of power. Does that mean we're going to stop going for demonstrations of power? Heck no. Because people need them. But it's not an indicator of spirituality. Have you ever noticed noticed that oftentimes the person who is the most anointed in ministry will also be the person who has the biggest failure in their life? It's because they're not entirely entirely connected. You say, well, why in the world world would would God allow demonstrations of power to happen through someone who's who's whacked out on on the character side? The basic answer is, one, I'm not totally sure. And the other answer is, two, because God just loves people that much. He is so so for his kids, he he would even take broken people who don't have all their character fixed out to use them to help his other kids. But when it comes to when it comes to position with God, oftentimes mercy and forgiveness is a better indicator. Here's, here's one of the things I've learned about mercy and forgiveness being an indicator. A lot of times, uh, acts of power can be nothing more than another notch in my Bible. You know? I go for acts of power because I want to put another stamp in my Bible. And it has nothing to do with the person who's receiving ministry. It's all about me and my Bible getting notches. However, I don't know if you've noticed this, but mercy and forgiveness, there's not much immediate glory to be gained from being a person who embraces a lifestyle of mercy and forgiveness. In fact, you know what most of the time happens? In fact, most of the time, if you become the kind of person who embraces a lifestyle of mercy and forgiveness, there's usually loss. You know what you usually lose? You usually lose your excuse for why everything's going wrong in your life. You usually lose the target for your own issues. And so, and so when we embrace a lifestyle of mercy and forgiveness... We've really embraced a lifestyle that cares about others in the same way that Jesus cares about others. 
Verse 34. This is called the fallout, by the way. Okay? Verse 34, the fallout. And in his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until, until he should pay back all that he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Verse 34 is the fallout. It's what happens when we, when we embrace a life of unforgiveness and bitterness. If you embrace a life of unforgiveness and bitterness, guess where you go? To prison. Guess what happens in prison? You get tortured. How many of you have ever realized that, um, or how many maybe have ever experienced this? Someone hurt you, they wounded you, and for a while you gave in to unforgiveness and bitterness because it was a friendly cousin and it, it spoke kind words to you. And so you gave in to unforgiveness and bitterness. And, and the more that you gave in to unforgiveness and bitterness, how many of you have ever realized this, that your circle starts getting smaller and smaller? And pretty soon, the only person who's left in your circle is you. It really sucks. But then here's what else happens. Because I, I think Jesus is telling a story that's, 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 way, that's way more intense than just you ending up alone. Jesus, when he says, hand him over to the jailer and let him be tortured, Jesus is, is actually talking about a spiritual reality, and it's a veiled reference to, uh, to, a, very, to a very real reality that happens. When you embrace when you embrace unforgiveness and bitterness in your life, it's like, it's like not taking the trash out, okay? Now, I want you to imagine, I don't know if, if some of you guys have a family like ours, but I, we, me and Heather, and we've got three kids, and the five of us can make an, just an, a bizarre amount of trash. I look at Heather sometimes, I think, how did this month's trash come out of our house this week? Anybody else ever had that thought? It's like, what happened here? We are killing the planet, just us. It's, it's my fault. Okay, so you take the trash out, some guy gets it, and they take it to some place, right? But when you embrace a lifestyle of bitterness and unforgiveness, it's like never taking the trash out, okay? You can get by with not taking the trash out for a week or two, but what happens when you don't take the trash out for two or three months? Imagine your kitchen, and you don't take the trash out for three months, what is in your kitchen? Yeah, there's trash, all right. But what else is in your kitchen now? Rats. So here's the deal. When we embrace a lifestyle of unforgiveness and bitterness, it's like not taking the trash out. And on the interior rooms of your heart, they begin to pile up with decaying and rotting matter. And the next thing you know, there are rats feasting on it. You know what the rats are? It's demonic influence. And the torture isn't just you being alone, but the torture is you're alone, but you're not alone. And it's, it's an open door, and it's a gateway for demonic influence in your life. Some of you are like, man, Adam, you're crazy. I don't believe you. Well, try it out. This is just a, this is just a little throwaway verse in 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church. He says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, 
I have forgiven him in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now this is the really key verse. In order that Satan might not outwit us. What do some of your other translations say? Some of the other translations say, in order that Satan might not gain an advantage. Oh, what's the point? The point is that bitterness and unforgiveness open the door just like trash. They open the door for the rats to come in and begin to feast. And when we give ourselves to bitterness and unforgiveness, we give Satan an advantage and we give him an opportunity to outwit us. We invite the demonic influence. Not only that, Ephesians 4.26, Paul writes, he says, In your anger, don't sin and don't let the sun go down while you're still angry so that you don't give the devil a foothold. You say, well, Adam, Paul's talking about anger. He's not talking about unforgiveness. How many of you realize that unforgiveness is just anger all grown up? See, anger that doesn't get dealt with turns into unforgiveness. Unforgiveness that doesn't get dealt with turns into bitterness. Bitterness that doesn't, come, doesn't get dealt with turns into strongholds. And then pretty soon, you're not the only one in your prison. Not a pretty picture, is it? Here, here's one thing that I've noticed about bitterness and unforgiveness. Just in general, and I, I'm going to make a very, a very general statement, and um, it should be taken as a very general statement, but nonetheless true. I have noticed that in dealing uh, with my own bitterness and unforgiveness and even coming into contact with people who really are having struggles with bitterness and unforgiveness, that oftentimes their lifestyles become smaller and smaller and smaller. They become more and more isolated, more and more alone, more and more alone. And oftentimes it's not just more and more isolated and more and more alone, but in order to feed the loneliness. See, one thing always leads to another. And so in order to feed the loneliness, a lot of times brand new addictions spring up and at the beginning, all you had was a problem with unforgiveness. And four years later, you've got bitterness, you've got strongholds, and you've got addictions of all varieties. I've seen this over and over again. A lot of times people will start with unforgiveness, and five years later, they're full-blown alcoholics. Why are they an alcoholic? Because they haven't dealt with the issue over here. And you won't, it won't change until you deal with this issue right here. We start, you, know, you start with unforgiveness, and five years later, we're addicted to prescription drugs, and we're living a solitary lifestyle in our room, and we never come out. You think, that can't be me. I promise you, if you keep sowing into unforgiveness, that'll be you. It's the only way it goes. Because your heart is a garden, and it will grow. Here's the deal. Your heart is not a desert. One of the things that the devil would love to tell every person in here is that your heart is a desert. Your heart is not a desert. Your heart is a garden. And just like a greenhouse or a garden, it will grow what gets put in it. And every little seed that's there comes up. Anything that we water multiplies. Have you guys ever grown corn? Anybody here ever grown corn? It, it's, it's the craziest thing. You take one kernel of corn, you put it in the ground. This, like 60 days later, there's a plant that's taller than me, okay? So one kernel of corn goes in the ground, giant plant comes up, and there's two ears of corn. Now how many kernels of corn do we have? Couldn't even begin to count it. What would happen if we just let that corn go to seed, and then those seed falls into the ground next year? And we have 800 corn plants. 
Okay, now we have 800 corn plants with each of them have two ears of corn and they have more kernels on them than we can count. So in two years, the problem went from one seed to how many? See, your, your heart is a garden. Your heart is a garden. And the Lord really wants to, he really wants to set a bunch of people free this morning from unforgiveness and bitterness. I have, uh, I have three ways here where we could just quickly identify perhaps if, if you have a bitterness or an unforgiveness issue that the Lord would like to deal with. One of the, one of the number one ways that you know that you have a bitterness or an un- unforgiveness issue that needs to be dealt with is, it, is this. Um, if you're, if you're in, the, in your mind's eye and in your heart and when you're alone, when you're driving or when you're in your shower, if you just begin to replay the wound. Anybody ever do that? Okay. But you don't just do it, but this is how you do it. You replay it, and the reason you replay it is because you replay it so that, so that if it happens next time, I know what I'm going to tell them. And you begin, you begin to build, anybody ever, begun, ever done this? You begin to build the dialogue for what you could say or what you should say. Okay, if you're building the dialogue, it's a really good sign that there's some unforgiveness and bitterness that Jesus would like to deal with. The replay, if you're building the dialogue. Number two, and it comes from the scripture here, uh, the servant who's forgiven billions goes out and he grabs another servant who owes him 6,000 bucks, and what does he do to him? He he doesn't just demand his money. What does he do? He grabs hold of him. There's hostility that's involved. And, and, and I, I know us, we're, we're, we're good people, and we're not that hostile. But how many of you realize that hostility has a lot of forms? And, how, and most of us were, were given enough raising to know that we can't just go out and punch any guy who needs it, right? So what happens? There's hostility on the inside, and everything on the inside wants to grab the person by the neck and choke the life out of them or tell them exactly what's up. But because we know that isn't the Christian thing to do, we just avoid them. See, a lot of times, hostility is avoidance. A lot of times, avoidance masquerades as hostility. And this is what ends up happening. When you try to avoid people in a town as small as Campbellsville, oh, it's a prison in itself, right? Imagine this with me. Just go here, you know. Campbellsville, Greensburg, we're not talking about big places. So I have a beef with somebody. I'm really angry on the inside. I am, I am watering unforgiveness and bitterness toward a person. They've sinned against me. They've treated me wrong. I have my constitutional rights for why I can be mad. And so I've begun to embrace that, that, that mindset and that heart attitude. And in the process of doing so, everything on the inside of me wants to just choke the person. But because I know I can't do it, I'll just avoid them. And so I go on avoiding them. And pretty soon, someone else hurts me, and I want to avoid them. And then someone else hurts me, and I want to avoid them. And, and after two or three years, the next thing you know, you've got a laundry list of people that you're trying to avoid in a town of 11,000 people when everyone goes to Walmart. Here's the deal. You are going to see them at Walmart. What are you going to do at Walmart? If you've ever been at Walmart, and someone who's hurt you, you catch them out of the corner of your eye, and rather than go down the aisle that you need to, you decide you'll go down the party aisle. 
If you've ever done that, you've probably got a, an unforgiveness and a bitterness issue that God would like to deal with. Uh, let me tell you a story about, about the fact that you just can't get away from people. Two stories, in fact. Like, here's the deal. Number one, you can't get away from people in Campbellsville. It is not going to happen. Number two, you can't go anywhere and get away from people. Um, my sister and her husband, Eric, they, um, they're, they're, they're legends, okay? And they're just so cosmopolitan, it's unbelievable. But uh, last week, Eric and Amanda went to, went to New York City for my sister's birthday. And so they, de- they decide to ride the subway across to Brooklyn, and they go to this really trendy spot in Brooklyn called Williamsburg, where all the hipsters hang out and all the, all, the, all the new bands get their groove on. And while they're leaving the show, they get in the subway, and some guy from two cars back is beating on the door going, Eric! You can't even go to New York City and not meet somebody you know. At one time we were, uh, this happened on my last trip to Peru, no, the one before it. I took a bunch of guys, Glenn was with me, took a bunch of guys to Peru, and on our last day there, before we were catching our plane, we decided that we wanted to go to this uh, Catholic church, this giant Catholic church in the middle of the city, and we wanted to go see the catacombs. Because underneath the church, there's 25,000 bodies, and we wanted to go see the skulls. Yeah, not a pretty picture in church history. But we decided we wanted to get that. So we went and bought our tickets, and we're standing in line. It was me and Glenn and Luke, and, and Sam was there. And we're standing in line waiting for our guided tour, and one of Luke's students that he teaches ESL, he, he, Adam look, he looks at me and he says, Adam, I think that's one of my students. I said, there's no chance we're in Lima. It's not one of your students. You know? and I was, he's like, no, I think it's one of my students. Sure enough, one of his students from ESL class was in Lima at the same darn Catholic church that we were. You know, it's 4,000 miles away. How does this happen? What's the point? The point is you can't avoid people. You can't avoid anyone. You might see them in Lima. (laughs) So number one, if you're replaying and you're doing the what I should and what I could have said, number two, if being around someone brings out hostility and because you're not comfortable being hostile, you decide you'll avoid them. And number three, if you're doing the counting thing, if you're saying, well, yeah, I've forgiven them, that was once. I've forgiven them, that was two times forgiven them that was three times it was four you know if your interactions with a person are just have been reduced in your own mind or in your own heart to a tally of offenses then there's probably some some bitterness and some unforgiveness that God would like to set you free from amen amen see some of us would read verse 34 or 35 and go, man, this is hardcore Jesus. I mean, I thought all I had to do was like, I thought all I had to do was just like say the prayer and get dunked in water and it was all good. I thought, I mean, come on. Here's the deal. Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't putting more rules into play, okay? Jesus is not putting more rules into play. Jesus is just saying that for people who have experienced his kind of mercy, that this is the kind of response that shows up. And so if there's a lack of response, what it really means is you haven't experienced his mercy. He's not saying you have to show mercy in order to get mercy. He's saying, no, you can't give mercy until you've received it. See, it's not about, it's not about 
It's not about telling rules, okay? So some of you are all freaked out and saying, well, Jesus is given a hard word, and I thought all I had to do was go pa- shake the pastor's hand and say the three-line prayer and get dunked in the water and take the little tiny Bible home, and then I thought it was all done, you know? No, I, what I'm here to say and what Jesus is here to say is if, if the little three-line prayer and getting, getting dunked in water meant anything at all, it will be evidenced in your life by mercy and generosity and forgiveness to the guy next door who drives you bonkers. Amen? Amen. Um, Why don't we stand up this morning? I feel like the Lord wants to just deliver a bunch of us from unforgiveness and bitterness.